Could you please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24? Exodus chapter 24. And then you can keep a finger there and then go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to invite you to stand up if you can. Exodus chapter 24. Let's read verses 1 through 8. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the other shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now let's go to Second Corinthians chapter 3. So Moses, the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. And now Paul is contrasting the Old with the New Covenant. Verse 4, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then he continues. Let's go to verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read what? The old covenant. That same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You can be seated. Let's pray. 
our Father who is in heaven. You are the King of kings. And at your right side, you have your Son, Jesus Christ, reigning. And we are your subjects. We are your servants. And we love that. There is no better, no greater status than being slaves of Christ. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for removing the veil out of our hearts so that we may behold Christ. And I pray for those who are here and they don't know you. Those who are here and their hearts and eyes are still veiled. I pray that your Holy Spirit through your word would remove that so they may behold the glory of Christ Jesus. Lord, we also pray for other churches in the Salem area. We pray your blessing upon your faithful church we pray that your under shepherds would be faithful in proclaiming your word and we pray that your sheep would belong to hear your voice so help us in this dark place help your church to be a light shining thank you for your benevolence towards us thank you for providing all our needs thank you for our daily bread thank you for food water cars, jobs, healthy bodies. Lord, we pray for those in our church who are sick and not able to be here. We pray that you'd be visiting them with healing hands, touch their hearts, and help us to glorify you right now. Help me to be faithful. We desperately need the work of the Holy Spirit here. I need the Holy Spirit, the congregation needs the Holy Spirit so we cry out to you Lord we are needy indeed in Jesus name we pray amen amen in Luke chapter 13 Jesus is talking about the nature of the kingdom of God and as he's talking about that he raises a question he says what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare the kingdom of God I think we could use the same questions, the same words, but instead of asking about the kingdom, ask about the Bible. What is the Bible like? To what shall we compare the Bible? And I think the answers would vary if we were to ask people around us, even some people inside this church. What is the Bible? What is the Bible like? What shall we compare the Bible? Here are some of the answers we would hear. For many people, the Bible is just a collection of ancient religious writings of well-meaning people who did not know better. So I think this week I was listening. Somebody sent me something about Joe Rogan. And he was criticizing the Bible, and who cares what he thinks? But I was listening, and, and that's exactly what he was saying. How, and that's the view of so many people, how the Bible is just this ancient book, and well, well-meaning people, but they just didn't have the technology and the science that we have today. For others, the Bible is just a big self-help book. Its primary purpose is to help you to be a better and happier person, or even a healthier person. 
So I just saw that Rick Warren had a book called The Daniel Diet. So he's using the Bible to promote healthier diet for people. So it's self-help. For many Christians, the Bible is just like a fortune cookie, right? So that's what they do. They open the Bible in whatever text. They have no idea. It's just, uh, all right, Lord, speak to me. They open the Bible, and after all, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Nico, king of Egypt, went up to fight. Ah, I didn't like that. So they turned to another page. Oh, I like this one here. So they put in the pocket, right? Good luck. So that's how a lot of people see the Bible. Others see the Bible as an instruction manual on how we are to live. That's the primary purpose of the Bible. That's my manual, my instruction manual. Primary purpose of the Bible should tell us what to do. And I will not deny that the Bible teaches what to do and how to live, but the, that's a mistake to see the Bible like that because the, I would say the, it's actually the opposite. It's what God has done for us. Not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> the primary message of the Bible is not what we are supposed to do, but what God has done for us. So, others see the Bible as a horoscope or a sci-fi movie. And the whole purpose of the Bible is to tell you about the future. So, they're always looking at the Bible and trying to find something to connect with the news. So that's the whole goal of the Bible, to help you to see what's taking place in the future. And others see the Bible as a thrift store. You go there to find cheap and useful junk for your life, grounded in a charitable cause, right? So that's how so many people see the Bible. And I will not deny that some of the things I just said, it's true in the Bible. The Bible does help us to live better lives. I will not deny that. That the Bible makes us happier people. That the Bible tells us how to live. But it's a great mistake when we think that that's all that the Bible is. That's not true. I would say that most people, including inside the church, they would be shocked, alarmed, if we were to tell them that the Bible is primarily a covenantal document. It's a covenantal document. We live in a society that cares less about covenants. And that's what's hard. We don't like covenants, commitment. Oath, obligations. But we have a God, a triune God, who is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And the Bible is above all His covenantal revelation given to His covenantal people. I would say that the best way, we're going to talk more about covenants in some other sermons probably next Sunday. But if you're thinking about covenant, and, and I will talk more about that, but I think that the easiest way to understand covenant is to think about marriage. Marriage is, is a wonderful way of understanding what a true covenant is. And I would say a, a biblical marriage, not the marriages that, that we see all around us. Peter Gentry and Wellam, they say, at the heart of the covenant is a relationship between parties characterized by faithfulness and that, the Hebrew word chesed, loyalty in love. That's the heart of the covenant. Another scholar says that a covenant is a solemn promise made binding by an oath, which may be either verbal or through a symbolic action. 
And that's God's nature. He's a, a covenant-making, a covenant-keeping God. And why is He making covenants with His people? Yahweh is the husband. And just like a faithful and loving husband, His purpose in making covenants is to bring His people into His presence so He may care for them, love them, and they can enjoy them. Amen? So God speaks His Word in order to reveal and renew His covenants. And here's the outline of this morning sermon. We are going to be looking at the Bible or the covenantal nature of the Bible. The covenantal nature of the Bible or the Bible as a covenantal book. And then we are going to look at the covenantal structure of the Bible's canon. So we are going to look at the covenantal structure of the canon. And I will save the third part probably for next Lord's Day. The covenantal framework of the Bible. For those who are visiting us, it's rare. We usually go through book by book of the Bible. We preach verse by verse. But it's important sometimes to stop and look at different subjects. And that's what we are doing. We finished the book of Philippians. We are going to the book of Genesis. But in between, I thought it would be good for us to learn more about the Bible. The expository preaching is always the hard labor of going verse by verse, word by word, chapter by chapter. And sometimes we miss the big forest, the wonderful picture of the Bible. And that's what I'm trying to do through this series, is to help you see the big picture of the Bible. So when we are going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, you can have this bigger picture to put these verses and these chapters and these books in context, okay? So, first of all, the Bible as a covenantal book. And at first it might sound weird, what, the Bible? I, I never heard that, that the Bible is a covenantal book. I always like the moralistic stories that we have in the Bible. So, for many people, the Bible is just full of interesting stories. You have Noah, oh yeah, who believes in Noah? Then you had the Moses guy, or you had Abraham. Oh yeah, they're Jesus, the twelve disciples. But very rarely we think about the Bible as a covenantal book. Now let me ask you, how is your Bible divided? We all here have English Bible, some have ESV, others have NIV, NAS. How is your Bible divided? Old and New uh, Testament. That's very good. Okay? So here, here's what takes place. The English word testament derives from the Latin testamentum. And here's important to, to grasp why we call Old and New Testament. And we go back to Hebrew. Okay? If you go back to the Hebrew and the word covenant, berit, berit. When they translated the Hebrew into Greek, the Septuagint, often the most frequent word that they used to translate the word berit was diatheke. Diatheke. That's the Greek. So you've got you to gotta think about the, the process of Bible translation. So when they translated from the Hebrew to the Greek, diatheke, and then we had the Vulgate when they translated the Greek to what? Uh, what is the Vulgate? The Latin. Yeah. So when they translate from the Greek to the Latin, 
the primary use to translate diatheke was testamentum. That would be covenant. Okay, so that's very important. Now that's where we have the word testament. would be better translated as covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. The Lexham Bible Dictionary says the term New Testament, Novum Testamentum, is a Latin rendering of the Greek phrase kainé diatheke, which literally translates as New Covenant. So even our own Bibles are divided in what? Old and New what? Covenants. So you start noticing the covenantal nature of the Bible, okay? Then you think about as translations went forth, and you have the Reformation, the Latin Vulgate was widely used through the Middle Ages that influenced the other translations. So, for example, John Wycliffe, or Wycliffe, however you want to call him, when he's translating into English and he comes to the Latin, he uses as testament. Testamentum, going back to the word for berit, diatheke, and then the English translations, just like William Tyndale or the Geneva Bible and the 1611 King James, they all follow with testament instead of covenant. But the idea behind of the word testament is what? Covenant. Okay, so that's very important. So we have the Old Testament, Vetus Testamentum, better translated as Old Covenant, and the New Testament. Uh, should be translated as what? New covenant. Yeah, so both parts together show God's covenantal document given to His people. And that's not something strange. We saw how Paul himself divides in Old Covenant, New Covenant. Or, for example, Paul himself divides the history of redemption into Adam and Jesus. So you, the, the covenantal head of the first creation and the covenantal head of the second creation. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, we hear the expectation of a new covenant coming. So Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new, uh, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it's interesting that when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, what does He say? Here it is. What the prophets spoke, what the prophets were, were longing for, this new covenant, now it's being established right before your eyes. So in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, it says, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The Latin, hic est calix, novum testamentum in sanguine mio. The novum testamentum. The New Testament, a new covenant in my blood. So that is Jesus showing how the expectation is now fulfilled. End of old covenant, inauguration of the new covenant. Paul also, we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about being the ministers of a new covenant. And then he talks about reading the old covenant. That's very fascinating. Reading the old covenant. You see, a covenant is a document that must be read and reread so people can 
be aware of the conditions, the blessings, the cursings, all that is involved in a covenant relationship. Also, another reference to the Bible as a covenantal book is that oftentimes we see throughout the whole Old Testament, the scriptures being called what? The law. Right? So sometimes, for example, Psalm 19, Psalm 119 talks about the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord. And the word Torah, I think it's a very poor translation to translate Torah as law. Because we have a different idea of law. Torah is basically instruction. Covenantal instruction. That's the idea behind Torah. It's a covenantal instruction. And that's exactly what the Old Testament is. So when you hear throughout the Scriptures, they're calling the, the, the Scriptures Torah, the law. They're talking about this body of covenantal instruction. So for example, Peter Gentry and Wellam, they say, they observe that the word Torah implies covenant as its reflex. Just as faith implies repentance as its reflex. There is no way to separate faith and repentance, and there is no way to separate Torah and covenant. Okay? Sadly, so many Christians look at the Old Testament as something old in the sense of useless. But that's not the truth. We cannot have the New Testament without the Old. Otherwise, we have heresy. Remember, the Marcion, that was the whole purpose, to remove the Old Testament. That's heresy. That's why I have a hard time with just giving the New Testament to people when you should be giving the whole book. And the same way that having just the Old Testament and not the New, you also have heresy. So we've got to have both Old and New Covenant forming this beautiful book. Gerhard Voss, Gerhard Voss, he says he, in his book, he's talking about the difference between knowledge, the way we, we see knowledge and the way that the Semitic people saw knowledge. You remember I talk about that, how knowledge was very much a covenantal relationship. That's why Jesus said, I never knew you. Meaning, I was never in a covenantal relationship with you. Depart from me. I never loved you. In relation to this, he says, Hence, to know can stand in the biblical idiom for to love. To single out in love. Because God desires to be known. After this fashion, he has caused his revelation to take place in the background, the milieu of the historical life of a people. And then he says, that's, that's amazing. The circle of revelation is not a school, but a covenant. To speak of revelation as, ed, as an education of humanity is a rationalistic and utterly unscriptural way of speaking. All that God disclosed of Himself has come in response to the practical religious needs of His people as these emerge in the course of history. What Gerhard Voss is saying here is that the Bible is not like so many people think, just this religious book full of interesting ideas, intriguing, fascinating stories, some proverbs here and there. No, the Bible, as he says, is a covenantal document in order to teach us about the character of this God, this covenantal God, and to teach us how to know Him in the sense of love Him, 
embrace Him, have a relationship with Him. So, as we think about the Bible, and oftentimes when you talk about covenants in the Bible, you all know that the Bible has covenants. Amen? Oh, it has the covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with the Mosaic covenant, with David. But we forget that the Bible itself is a covenantal document. The Bible not only speaks about covenants, but the Bible is a covenant in itself. Meredith Klein, he says, It's supremely important that we apprehend in faith the Old Testament's claim that God is, is its primary author. If we do, we will see the Old Testament as more than an anthology of various types of literature produced by a series of authors across a span of centuries. No, 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 you will understand that it all issued ultimately, all coming ultimately from the throne room of Israel's heavenly king. And that all its literary forms possess a functional unity as instruments of Yahweh's ongoing covenantal oversight of the conduct and faith of his vassal people. So what he's saying is that as you look at the, let's think about the Old Testament. That's where he is. And what he's saying is that the Old Testament is a covenantal document to teach Israel under the Old Covenant how to live in this covenant with God. So everything that we have in the Bible is to help God's covenantal people to live in covenant with Him, to understand His character, to understand Him better and how we are to live with Him in this covenantal relationship. So, sometimes we think about, for example, the laws. And we try to divide the laws. And we say, oh, there is a civil law, and there is a moral law, and there is a religious law. Have you ever heard the tripartite of the law? How can you divide when the whole life is theological under God? Everything that we do is related to this covenant with God. It's not like we can separate areas of our lives and say, Oh, th this area here is not religious. This area here is just civil. All our lives, especially when the Lord is our King, all our lives are grounded in this covenantal relationship with Him. And the same in the New Covenant. So this book, the Bible, comes from the, as Klein sa says, comes from the throne room of the King and the Lord of Lords. And it contains the history and the terms of His covenant with His people. And that's what we saw in Exodus chapter 24. Exodus tw 24, you can turn there with me. Turn to Exodus chapter 24. It says, verse 7, Then Moses took what? The book of the covenant. And I know that's part of the Old Testament. 
But by nature, by the covenantal nature of the scriptures and God speaking his revelation to his people, I would argue that all the Bible is the book of the covenant. The same thing we can turn with me to Second Kings. Turn with me to Second Kings chapter twenty three. It's a beautiful text here. Because you remember in chapter 22, Hilkiah, the high priest, he finds the book of the law. And he brings the book of the law to the king, King Josiah. And then in chapter 23, we read, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him, and the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing the words of what? The words of the book of the covenant. So there is a renewal of the covenant right here. As they stand and they hear, they listen to the reading of the book of the covenant. That's how we start getting a glimpse of how the whole Bible is in itself the book of the covenant. So, and I'm not the only one. I was glad to find Peter Jensen. He writes in his book, The Revelation of God. He says, Scripture serves the kingdom of God by encapsulating the covenant. In the sense, the Bible as a whole may be called the book of the covenant. For in it, the covenant of God is recorded, expounded, and applied. Turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Most of you know this psalm. It's a majestic meditation on God's revelation. And Psalm 19 shows the covenantal nature of the Bible. You might say, how? Notice that the Psalm 19 is divided in two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 6, David, he praises the Lord for his, what we call general revelation. How nature, how creation proclaims the glory of God himself. And notice the word that he used for God there. If you had a Hebrew text, you'd see that he used the word El, God. It's a more general word for God, El. And then he starts in verse 7. He, he, he changes. And he starts praising what? What, what is he praising? But what is he praising? The law. The law of the Lord. The precepts. The special revelation. And now he changes the name also, and what is that he's using now? Yahweh, the covenantal name of God himself. So you see, as he's talking about the general revelation, that's wonderful, but general revelation cannot save people. It gives enough information for people to be condemned in hell forever. But then he changes, and he starts speaking about the glory and the beauty of God's special covenantal revelation, the Torah, the law, 
the instruction of Yahweh and how beautiful it is. Makes us alive. It's sweet. So you see right there how David himself is showing through the way he's writing how God's revelation, his special covenantal revelation, is for his covenantal people. You see, everyone can hear the thunder, see the trees moving, hear the birds. But can everybody hear God's voice through the scriptures? Can everybody hear God's voice through the scriptures? No. Jesus tells the religious leaders of his day, you don't hear me because you're not mine. We cannot understand the things of God unless God first changes our hearts and makes a covenant with us. So, we see the covenantal nature of the Scriptures. The Bible is a covenantal book. And I would argue that the Bible is not only a covenantal book, but the Bible also is structured. It has a structure that's covenantal. The canon is covenantal. And here's where I need you to pay attention even more. Our Old Testament is structured differently from Jesus' Bible. Did you know that? Remember, Jesus' Old Testament was structured around three parts. Do you remember the three parts of Jesus' scriptures? Luke chapter 24. Law, prophets, and what? The Psalms or the writings. Right? The Psalms or the writings. And that's called the Tanakh. And I have here the Tanakh. That's how we call this structure, this, this Hebrew Old Testament, Tanakh. And it's an acronym, Tanakh. And you have the three major letters, the T, the N, and the K. The T for Torah, the N for Ne'evim, and the K for Ketuvim. Torah, the law, Ne'evim, the prophets, and then the K, Ketuvim for the writings. And that's, I'm going to talk more about that as we go through these studies, because I think that's very important. I think, I honestly think that's the best way of structuring the Old Testament. There's more coherence. Our English Bibles, they're following the Greek way of looking at the structure of this, the Old Testament. So, for example, we have 39 books divided. I have here. And, and, and you have in the bulletin also. Right, Brian? We were able to, to get into the bullet. If you, if you have the bulletin with you, we have that with you. So, for example, our English Old Testament has 39 books, and we are dividing law, history, poetry, and prophecy. Right? Are we okay here? Are we following together? I hope most of you, yeah, sure. And some are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay? So that's how we divide our Old Testament. The Tanakh is divided in three parts, and they have 24 books. But it's the same, we, we have the same books. Our English Old Testament and the Tanakh, even though we have 39, they have 24, they're all the same books. Okay, that's very important. 
Why? How can they have 24 and we have 39? We have 1st and 2nd Samuel. They have Samuel. We have 1st and 2nd Kings. They have Kings. We have 1st and 2nd Chronicles. They have Chronicles. We have 12 minor prophets. Do you know what they have? One is crow with all the prophets. So that's one book. So the 12 come into one book. So that's how things change. And I will use the Tanakh as our structure. The, the Torah, Nevin, and Ketuvin. What they call law, prophets, and the writings. That's very important to understand. That, that's how I think it's better structured. And when we compare with the New Testament, and that's what I want to show you, the, the covenantal structure of the canon. And I'm borrowing much of this from Miles Van Pelt and Meredith Klein. So you can see that as we put the New and the Old Testament together as one covenantal book, and as a covenantal document, we have a covenant prologue and a covenant epilogue. The first words and the last words of a document. Okay? That would be Genesis and Revelation. That's the beginning and the end of this covenantal document. And then you're going to see as we go through this, that it's beautiful how our Bibles are structured. So, for example, let's go to the covenant prologue and epilogue. The books of Genesis and Revelation are the book ends of the Bible, and they serve as the covenant prologue, Genesis, covenant epilogue, Revelation, thus bringing the introduction and the conclusion to this covenantal document. Despite the difference of time, language, and human authorship, these two books were designed to fit together and shape the message of the Christian Bible. Every promise and covenant, covenant established in the book of Genesis, creation, redemption, think about Noah, Abraham, finds its full fulfillment and consummation in the book of Revelation. We saw that before, and it's, I think it's important to see once again how Genesis and Revelation are majestically fitting with each other. So we have in Genesis 1-2 the creation of the heaven and the earth. We have a marriage covenant. Adam and Eve, the bride comes to the garden sanctuary. Rivers of water flow for the nations. We have Satan's destruction, destruction promised. And then we move to Revelation. Then we have Satan's destruction accomplished. We have a marriage covenant, the lamb and the bride. The bride comes to a city sanctuary from which rivers of water flow to the nations. And then we have creation of a new heavens and new earth. Think about Genesis. We have Abraham and his 12 descendants. The book of Revelation expands that. Then we have 24. And then you have 12,000 times 12 as we finish with when they see 144,000 standing before the throne of God. That's to show the multiplication of the seed of Abraham that we have in Genesis. The fulfillment. Remember that God promises that a great multitude will be blessed by you. And that's what the book of Revelation shows. How in Christ we have this great multitude now being blessed in the presence of God through the seed of Abraham. Something else that yesterday I was digging and I could notice is how Genesis and Revelation, they are structured. Each book separately, they are structured as a covenantal document. So, here's just to help you, and I need to go quickly here. The book of Genesis opens as a covenantal document 
of a great king. So, Jeffrey Nehaus, he says, Genesis articulates major elements of a covenant uh, from that period of time, including a title, historical prologue, stipulations, witness blessings and curses. The covenant nature of the creation account enables us to understand at the outset some essential matters. And then he says, God was from the beginning the great king. And as a great king, he's the one who initiates a covenant. That's how it was in ancient times. The king comes to initiate a covenant. He created a visible kingdom, the world. And he installed royalty, the man and the woman, as vassal king and queen over the kingdom. He goes on to show the covenantal structure of Genesis 1 and 2. So you have a title, you have historical prologue, you have stipulations, witness, blessings, cursings. Curses, it's all covenantal language, this structure. And then if you go to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, also it is structured as a covenantal document. Very similar to Genesis. You have a title, you have a preamble, you have historical prologue, you have stipulations, witnesses, blessings, curses, all in Revelation. So you can see the, the covenantal structure of Genesis, covenantal structure of Revelation, Feeding with the whole covenantal structure of the whole Bible. There is a sevenfold blessing in Revelation, balanced by a sevenfold woe. This follows the pattern of covenant stipulations in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation begins and ends with blessings and cursing. Curses just like read Deuteronomy as they are renewing the law. There are blessings and curses. So, Revelation 1.3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. You see, why are we reading aloud? It's a covenantal document. Do you remember in the Old Covenant, they had to read aloud the book of the covenant. The same thing here. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written. See, that's covenantal language. Or, towards the end of the book, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues describing this book. Well, they're curses. Just like a covenantal document. So, the book of Genesis prepare us for what's coming. So, you have Noah, you have Adam, Noah, Abraham, and they are preparing the way for the establishment of the covenant with Moses, or Mosaic Covenant, Israelite Covenant, right there. So, that leads us to the next part. So, we saw the epilogue and the prologue, how they fit together, and now we move to the Torah, the instruction. So, if we move Genesis to the prologue, how many books are left? Remember, the Torah, we have five books, the Pentateuch. But if we move Genesis to the beginning, how many books are left? Four. What are the four books? Exodus, what else? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That matches with what? The four Gospels. So we have the inauguration of the covenant, the old covenant, and then you have the inauguration of the new covenant. It's matching there. Each testament, the covenant, the covenant books are framed by the birth and death of the covenant medi mediator and contain the accounts of their lives and teachings in the context of the covenant administration. So who is the covenant mediator under the old covenant? Moses. Who is the covenant mediator under the new covenant? Jesus. 
And if you go through, that, that's just a few, just a few of the parallels between Moses and Jesus. You have genealogy of the mediator. You have threat of death under Pharaoh. You have threat of death under Herod. That's Jesus. Moses escapes. Jesus escapes. Moses, there's the use of an ark. Jesus has the use of a manger. One is raised up in Egypt. The other is taken to Egypt. One has a Miriam in his family. The other has a Mary, whose names are very similar. One organized the 12 tribes. The other gathers 12 disciples. There's the crossing of the waters. Goes through the waters, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness, mountain law, mountain law, Matthew 5, he goes up to the mountain to give a new Torah, new instruction, miraculous provision of food, miraculous provision of food, persecuted, persecuted. So you can see similarities. There are more between these covenant mediators as we get Exodus through Deuteronomy and you have Matthew through John. Okay? But we cannot forget that there is a drastic difference between Moses and Jesus. And that's what the author of Hebrews says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Or Hebrews 7:22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay? So that's we need to move quickly here so you can see this parallel. Now we move to the covenant history. And that's where it's different from our English Bibles, especially. Because the prophetic books in the Tanakh, the prophets, they are divided in two parts. You have, and I have here for you. So, you have the earlier prophets, and then you have the latter prophets. If you're reading the Bible of Jesus in the first century. Okay? So, you had the earlier prophets, and you have four books there. You have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Those are the earlier prophets. And they basically, they tell the story of God's covenant people from occupation to deportation. From entering the land to exile from the land. These books present in this history, it's described as God's faithfulness to His covenant promises and Israel's infidelity to that covenant. And then you have the letter prophets. So you had four here, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. And then you have four here. With the, there is a beautiful balance. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the twelve. They are just one scroll. So four and four. The letter prophets, they form the authorized, inspired prophetic interpretation of Israel's history under the covenant. The prophets were called to serve as God's covenant officials, as covenant lawyers prosecuting the Lord's covenant lawsuit against the unfaithful people. Then you say, how does that match with Acts? I'm glad you asked. The book of Acts is the counterpart. Why? Because we have the history of God's new covenant. And we also have the interpretation of that history through the preaching of the apostles. So the sermons in Acts serve to interpret what God is doing, just like the latter prophets. Uh, there is also similarities between the two. One similarity that we can easily see is the story of Achan in Joshua compared to what story in the book of Acts? 
Ananias and Sapphira. Hiding things. The Lord judging them. Okay? The book of Acts, similar to the prophets, has se several programmatic speeches that function as the prophetic apostolic interpretation of the history. Especially Peter, Stephen, and Paul. Acts 7 is very similar to the letter of prophets where we see Stephen's preaching telling the whole history of Israel's unfaithfulness. And then what happens to Stephen? He's martyred just like the prophets of old. Okay? Last part is the, the writings or the covenant life. And that comes the writings, all we call the, uh, you have Tanakh, you have the T for Torah, the N for Nevin, the K for Ketuvim, the writings. And these books teach us how to think and live by faith in light of the covenant in which you belong. So, here you have Psalms, you have Job, you have Proverbs. It's, it's, it's differently structured from our Old Testament, but there is much reasoning behind that. Now, I hope to explain as we go through. But this, all these books teach God's people how to, live, how to live, how to dwell with God in His covenant, either in exile or in the land. That's very important. Psalms, for example. Psalms is a good example. We always go to the Psalms and a lot of times, why we're we not singing the Psalms? We need to sing the Psalms more. Or some church, we just can't, we can only sing the Psalms. And we forget that we, there is a difference of covenants here. And for the people under the old covenant, yes. We are under the new covenant. So that's very important to, to be, be careful with that idea. The Psalms is a great example. One scholar calls the Psalm a cantata about the Davidic covenant. It's very covenantal in its form. Even the book of Psalms has five books. If you read Psalms, it's divided in five blocks. That leads us to what? What portion of the scriptures? The Torah, the five books. Uh, Kleins, he writes the following about Psalms. The Psalms of praise, whether magnifying the majesty of Yahweh's person or the wonder of His ways in creation or redemption, were a part of Israel's tributary obligations. They were the spiritual sacrifice of the lips offered to the great king. As instruments of private and public devotion, they were a continual resounding of Israel's Amen, of covenant ratification. Psalms that rehearsed the course of covenant history were confessional responses of acknowledgement to the surveys of Yahweh's mighty acts in Israel's behalf, which were contained in the historical prologues of the treaties. So he goes on. The, the Psalter served broadly as a cultic instrument in the maintenance of a proper covenantal relationship with Yahweh. We, we don't think about psalms like that, but that's the covenantal nature of the psalms. That's the tributary. That's what God's people must pay back to speak, to rehearse, to remember the history and sing to this great king. Think about Proverbs. We all go to Proverbs and we forget that there is a covenantal. We are, we are quick to do... Uh, like good Bible stud students, we are, we are quick, quick to do, okay, there is a historical, there is a cultural difference, so we've got to be careful with the cultural difference, but we forget about the covenantal difference. 
And Proverbs is very, very covenantal as the father represents the king teaching the people how to live, how to receive the blessings of the covenant life or to be aware of the curses if they break the covenant. Daniel and Esther, think about how to live. Daniel and Esther, they show us how to live and how not to live in exile. So Daniel teaches us how to live in exile. Esther teaches how not to live in exile. Amen? Nobody wants to be like Esther. Forsaking God's people, not returning to the land, sleeping with a pagan king. Amen? Who wants that for your daughter? No, you want, like Daniel, how to live in exile. I'm willing to die for my true king. I will keep myself holy. Okay? Uh, and the, the counterpart is Paul, the letters. I would say that how to live in the covenant is counterpart by the letters of the New Testament. They're very practical, teaching us how to live while we are in exile here, right? So it's the counterpart of the, the writings. Are we good? Yeah? Once again, I can see the confusion in all your eyes. And, and those, that's all. I have never had the time to explore and teach these things. So you guys are the first one receiving that. And thank you for your patience. Uh, I wish we had, if we had uh, Sunday schools, we could go through and take more time. But I just hope that you can see the beauty, the majesty of the Word of God and the covenantal aspect, structure, nature of the Bible. So to finish, how can we apply all this? First, the covenantal structure reminds us that we must be careful when interpreting the Scriptures. Okay, that's the first thing. Be careful when you're interpreting the Scriptures. That's very important. We see God working through covenants. And under each covenant, there is a, a certain type of administration. I would say that though all Scripture is profitable, not all Scripture is to be applied in the same manner. Amen? That's why some of you ate pig this weekend. So you think about the food loss. Why we don't keep the food loss? There is a covenantal distinction. Amen? So those are things to help you as you're studying the Scriptures. Okay, uh, what covenant is that taking place? Oh, that's Abrahamic covenant. Oh, that's in the Noahic covenant. Oh, that's in the Davidic covenant. Oh, now we see the king, the, the development of a king that they're looking for. Uh, second, the covenantal nature of the Bible reminds us that we cannot play loose with the Bible. That's a covenantal document. You don't play loose with a covenantal document. Unless you're willing and eager to receive the penalties, right? When somebody gives you a covenantal document, you read carefully. There is a sort of reverence in the same with the scriptures. Third, the things we do in church flow from the covenantal nature of the Bible. What do you mean by that? I mean the public reading of the Scriptures. Why do you read the, the, the Scriptures in public? 
Why there is the reading of the Scriptures? Because God commands us. Why? Because it's part of this covenantal relationship where we must be reminded of the covenant book, the book of the covenant. Think about baptism in the church. It's a public identification of a disciple's submission to Jesus. There is the oath that you profess to love the Lord, serve the Lord, to belong to the Lord. The Lord's table is a covenantal meal of remembrance. We celebrate and proclaim the new covenant through a symbolic meal. The singing celebrates the covenant that the great king has made with us. Our fellowship resembles the covenant commitment that God has with us and we with one another. So Lord's Day, brothers and sisters, is a very special day. Think about the covenantal nature of what's taking place here. It's basically a covenantal renewal every time we gather together. To be reminded of this wonderful covenantal king who is over us and entered into covenant with us. Fourth, the covenantal nature of the Bible shows us that Christ, our majestic covenant mediator, is the great hero of this story. Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of all these covenants. Jesus is the seed of the woman. He's the offspring of Abraham. He is the better covenant mediator, the true and better temple, the true and better sacrifice. He's the true and better Israel. He is the seed of David according to the flesh, the king of the kingdom of God, the true and better prophet. Jesus Christ, the true and better wisdom. Amen? All that in Jesus. And lastly, final. God's covenantal word is always effective and powerful. I like what Peter Jensen writes. He says, without a doubt, the Bible teaches us about God. It has a key didactic function. If we are to respond to God in the, in the area of truth, we need to be instructed in the truth. But we, we also need to do justice to its covenantal nature. Its function, look at that, its function of finding us and holding us for God through its promises. The promissory, the promissory nature of Scripture means that it gives us information about the plans and purposes of God. The Bible is God's many-sided provision for His covenant people. Amen. Amen. The Bible is God's covenantal word that finds us, shapes us, and holds us in this covenant. All of us here who have been saved, how were you saved? By the work of the Spirit, opening your eyes and your ears to hear the word of this covenant. And you beheld the grace and the majesty of this covenant-keeping God. When you deserved hell, He showed Himself to be a majestic King full of grace and mercy, who was willing to make a covenant with you. That's the power of these scriptures. That's why we preach these scriptures. That's why we teach these scriptures. Because there is power in this covenantal document. In truth, God has not called us to be a people who know things about Him, nor has given us a Bible to fill our minds with desperate truths alone. He has revealed Himself in His Word so that we might enjoy an everlasting covenant with Him through the sacrifice of His Son and the power of His Holy Spirit.
That's a book for us to love Him, treasure Him, serve Him, grow into His likeness. Father, we thank You for Your grace towards us and Your mercy. We praise You that You are a covenant-making, a covenant-keeping, triune God. That's all we need the most. Thank you for coming in grace and power and speaking your word to us, shaping us, making us, reviving us. Lord, I pray that this morning you would bring those who are not in a covenant with you to be your covenant people. There is no better Master, there is no better Lord, there is no better King than serving you, than being in a covenant relationship with you. Thank you for this wonderful book you have given us. It's marvelous, it's powerful. Thank you. Forgive us, forgive us, O oh Lord for playing loose with your book, neglecting your book, and not giving the attention they deserves. And we know that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and right to forgive us and change us. Thank you for this wonderful morning. In Jesus, our glorious mediator of a much better covenant. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.